0: As a pastor, it would be difficult to find scripture more appealing to preach from than this passage and others in 1 John 1. They're gospel-rich. They're very practical. A main theme in 1 John is fellowship. Fellowship we will define as real and practical sharing in eternal life with the Father and the Son. That's from Baker's Evangelical Dictionary. In 1 John... Fellowship is applied to one sharing an eternal life with God and sharing eternal life with fellow believers as we participate with one another. The eternal life which we share begins here on earth, but the greater portion of eternal life time-wise and quality-wise is reserved for us in heaven and will be eternally satisfying and meaningful. The fellowship that we have with God and with others is a treasure to be enjoyed, and it's also a treasure to be developed. This fellowship can never be enjoyed or developed by an unbeliever. Nevertheless, there are many unbelievers attached to churches. This is a conviction for me that grows every year that I am in ministry. Uh, unsaved persons in the church are alluded to later in in 1 John chapter 2 verse 19. He says, "They went out from us, but they were not of us; for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might Be made manifest that none of them were of us. These persons who were part of the church but unsaved were not recognized as impostors while they were attached to the church. It was after they left that it became clear that they had never been part of the true fellowship. John, although writing primarily to believers, was aware that his epistle would be read by some, perhaps many, unsaved people. John was faced with a challenge. Now, His goal was to help the true s- saints have assurance of their salvation. At the same time, he wanted to make sure that his letter would not be used to provide false assurance to the unsaved. He aimed to provide assurance of salvation to the saved while at the same time shaking the false assurance of unsaved people, and that's a daunting task, especially since people come with such varied personalities. There are some with timid and tender hearts, with consciences that are easily offended How does a person keep very sensitive Christians from being tortured by doubts? There are other personalities who are bold and confident, seldom troubled by conscience. How does a person keep these bold unbelievers from assuming falsely that everything between God and themselves is good? It would be an altogether impossible task without the Holy Spirit Using scripture in each individual's life, dealing with them in their own personal need. Well, let's look at how John went about accomplishing this task. We'll start in verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from him and declared to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, before we get to the character of God, let's note that John emphasized his message came from Jesus himself. This is the message we heard from him. John's own opinion didn't matter that much to him. My own opinion doesn't matter that much to me. Any good Christian should be able to say, my my own opinion about who God is doesn't really matter. What matters is what God has revealed about himself. And so John starts out by saying, what I'm about to tell you came from Jesus himself in the person of Jesus the world observed the exact image of the father and heard the exact words of the father i have not spoken said jesus on my own authority but the father who sent me gave me a command what i should say and what i should speak john 12:49 and the message that john heard from jesus is that god is light Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, this, of course, was a metaphor. Jesus was not the physical light of the world. That job still came from the sun, S-U-N. Jesus is the spiritual light of the world. And when we say God is light... What we mean is that God is holy, light, absolute holiness, righteousness, and purity. Any teaching that God could be wrong or God could be improved on or that God needs to be updated by culture or that God may need to be corrected or that God may need to be forgiven by us, is blasphemous in its nature and is forbidden by John God is flawless in all of his nature so anytime that I doubt God time that I am angry at God simply displays weakness in my faith now God is able to handle our anger and he's dealt with many saints when they were angry I consider Jonah as an example and In Jonah 4.9, God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah said, It is right for me to be angry, even unto death. But for Jonah and for us, it's very difficult to actually comprehend what it means to be pure light in a spiritual and moral sense. And that's why John said in his, his gospel, chapter 1, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The light, Jesus, was shining in the midst of the world, but the world and all its darkness could not understand it, couldn't comprehend it, couldn't grasp it, couldn't seize it, could not attain to the light. The darkness was overwhelmed by the light. The, the darkness was bewildered by the light. The darkness in the world and of the world had nothing to compare this great light to. The world had never seen anything like the light of Jesus Christ. The world had nothing in its repertoire to compare the light to. There was never a meaningful standard for moral purity in real life other than the standard given in Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Uh, To the hearts of men, deep in sin, deep in deceit, deep in corruption, there was no way for them to even consider that there could be a perfect being in character without sin. And since we had nothing too uh, meaningful to compare spiritual holy holiness with the Bible used the metaphor of physical light God said John is pure and complete light there is no darkness in him at all nor can there be because light extinguishes extinguishes darkness the writer of Hebrews said for our God is a consuming fire Hebrews twelve twenty nine. what does God consume Will he consume and destroy righteousness? No, he's a a consuming fire to evil. God and evil don't get along. And since God and evil don't get along, there is a barrier to fellowship with God, and that barrier is noted in verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. The barrier to fellowship with God is darkness. Now, darkness in the teaching um, of the Bible is the abode of evil, uh, suffering, and, and death. Darkness is the abode of evil, suffering, and death. Now, there's no fellowship with God when a person is walking in darkness because God is a consuming fire, God will not come and make his abode with a man or a woman filled with darkness. But the opposite is also true. A man or woman who loves darkness will not come to the light either. We see that in John 3:19. This is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. And so there we hear that the darkness doesn't choose to come to the light. Uh, that doesn't mean that unsaved people don't sometimes become part of the church. They do. There's many reasons why uh, people, unsaved people, might want to be part of the church, especially in a culture like ours. Now, in China, you won't see that where the Christians are hiding from persecution. and uh, There's no reason to join a church if you're an unbeliever in China. But in the United States, sometimes it's reputation. Sometimes it's a social event. And so many people attach themselves to churches who are unsaved. There's nothing... To indicate that unsaved people don't think that they are saved and walking in the light. Clearly that does happen, and I think quite often, unfortunately, verses that we refer to often from Matthew 7, starting at verse 21 not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many, not a few, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. Have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, if you look at verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. we might wonder, well, how can anyone be saved then? Since the best of us sin, no one really walks with God in light. We're all stumbling and bumbling sinners. John was a step ahead of us. He dealt with the question of sinless perfection in verse 8 if we say that we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us the expectation is not sinless perfection there's a big difference between walking in darkness and the sins that are committed by a Christian walking in darkness is habitual It's an unrepentant lifestyle. A person walking in darkness hates the light and flees from it. A Christian loves the light, notwithstanding the fact that he or she fails much more often than they would like to. But when a Christian sins, they dislike their own sin. They are saddened by their sin, and they're drawn back to the light. So the difference between the person in verse 6, walking in darkness, and verse 7... Walking in the light is the difference between an unrepentant, unsaved sinner, verse 6, and a repentant and saved sinner, verse 7. The unsaved person walks habitually in darkness as a lifestyle. The saved person makes a habit of walking in the light. The saved person lives with more and more light. Is there evidence of salvation in your daily life? Are you changing more and more, weeding out sins that plagued you at one time and living more and more as a servant who studies God's word, fellowships with God in prayer and serves the saints around you? We say where there's no fruit, there is no root. Where there's no spiritual fruit, No evidences of salvation. Don't bother to suppose that you've become a new creation in Jesus Christ. When a person is saved, the Holy Spirit comes into their life. There is no more powerful force in this world than the Holy Spirit. Don't imagine that the Holy Spirit has come into your life if there's no evidence of change. Where there is no fruit, there is no root. There will be evidences that accompany the Holy Spirit's presence. All right, now, how do I get a ticket to this life where the Holy Spirit comes into my life and I begin to walk in the light? Now, we're in verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin passport to fellowship with God we can put it that way the passport is cleansing of sins through Jesus Christ now John wrote this epistle in large part so that believers would know they are saved we know that from chapter 5 verse 13 John said I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life In verse 7, we see two signposts or two landmarks that will show you whether you were on the right path or not. One signpost, you're walking in the light. Second signpost, you have fellowship with the saints. One, you're walking in the light, becoming more and more righteous in practical ways compared to a year ago or five years ago. If you see that signpost in your life becoming in a practical way, more righteous day by day, that's a very good sign. Second signpost, you have fellowship with the saints. You enjoy being around other Christians. You find yourself at home with believers. You find joy and blessing in Christian friends. You find yourself serving fellow believers through prayer and in practical ways. If your life is progressing and these two signposts, practical daily righteousness, love for the saints, you can have confidence that you have eternal life. Your entrance to that eternal life, though, is only through the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. This is the only ticket, the only passport into eternal life. Either your sins today are cleansed by Jesus Christ or your sins are not cleansed by Jesus Christ. There's no middle ground. There is no position of partially forgiven. And there is no such thing as you're working toward forgiveness because no one can earn forgiveness. Ephesians two eight by grace you have been saved through faith it is not your own doing it is the gift of God how shall I get this gift by calling on God for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved Romans ten thirteen but but how should I call on the Lord now, don't worry about the words. God in heaven understands many kinds of words. The thief on the cross, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The publican beating his breast outside the temple. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Ethiopian eunuch, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. See, God hears your heart. And there are two conditions of your heart that need to be met. They're stated in Mark 1.15, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent, sorrow for your sin, an honest desire to change. Repent and believe the gospel. Trust that Jesus paid your sin debt on Calvary. Now, I stated that walking in the light as God is in the light does not mean sinless Perfection. Let's address that issue for a little bit. A few Christians believe in sinless perfection. If you see a church that calls itself a holiness church, or sometimes a church going by a church of God, the chances are it could be a church that believes in entire sanctification or sinless perfection. They believe that. you can progress to the place where you no longer sin years ago when I was still living in Kidron I was at the town and country store and there was a conservative woman who apparently sensed that I was a believer she struck up a conversation with me and she asked me if I was living without sin I said no she wanted to know why not and I said because of If I should say I am without sin, I would be making God a liar. And I referenced these verses in 1 John. We're now looking at verses 8 and 10. Verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Someone might want to suggest that John is talking in past tense. There was sin in my life before I was saved, but not now. But my understanding of the Greek indicates that these verses are not written in past tense, but in continuous, ongoing, present tense. In other words, verse 10 could be translated something like this. If we say we are no longer sinning, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Okay, let's look at verses eight and ten, and s- try to see if they're simply repetition. John does use a lot of repetition in uh, his his writings. Now, Paul, uh, a very very much logical person, when when Paul writes an epistle, it's like a, a, a like a journal, an entry into a scientific journal. He walks through the Uh, logically he picks up a a subject and he walks through it step by step by step by step and and you realize how difficult it is to follow his logic John writes more as a poet he circles back to the subjects that that he covered and, 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 and varies what he says a little bit a lot like a lot like reading a hymn out of your hymnal it's poetic but I I don't think that verses 8 and 10 are entirely poetic in terms of repeating the same information notice in verse 8 sin is singular if we say we have no sin in verse 10 if we say that we have not sinned the implication is plural it's the difference between sin in verse 8 and sins in verse 10. Verse 8 is addressing people who deny that they have a sin nature or that they have at least a sin nature any any longer. <clears throat> John, in his writing, was refuting a false teaching, teaching that was popular during his time called Gnosticism. A Gnostic is... Uh, it translated one who one who knows. One who knows. And Gnostics believed that salvation came from a divine awakening, a uh, super special knowledge that 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 raised them to heights that, that that other people couldn't attain to. In other words, they were smarter and more elite than anyone else. Uh these people were teaching, perhaps, that they had they had risen above the frailties of humanity. Now well, John taught that when we are saved, we don't eradicate that old nature, that sin nature stays with us. We do have a new nature, the Bible tells us. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, 2 Corinthians five seventeen. So verse 8 is a denial of even having that nature or tendency to sin. Verse 10 is a denial of ever having sinned. If we say that we have not sinned, and we see a variation of this today, um, not infrequently, when a person says something to the effect of this, well, I think I'm a pretty good guy. You know, I never killed anyone. I don't cheat on my wife. I pay taxes. I support the Rotary Club. I work hard at my job. I don't think God has any gripe with me. In other words, repentance is not for me. It's for the addict down the street. Uh, Notice the results of a denial of sinfulness. In verse 8, a person is self-deceived, In verse 10, the person calls God a liar. God commands all men everywhere to repent, Acts 17, 30. And any pretense that a person may not need the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ is a direct rejection of what God has specifically said. Unfortunately, many people do not believe this. And when a person believes that he doesn't need Jesus Christ, God's truth is not in him, verse 8. And God's word is not in him, verse 10. It's impossible for that person to be saved. It matters what you believe. As long as you believe you don't need Jesus and don't repent, there is no salvation. There's no salvation without repentance. There's no repentance when a man... Or a woman thinks they don't need it. A denial of a person's sin results in self deception, which inoculates against salvation. I've uh, heard it said before that you've got to get a man lost before you can get him saved. What they mean by that is, is that there has to be an admission of sin before a person will come to Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins. All right, that leaves us with verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. they are talking about continual cleansing. Continual cleansing is possible and it's necessary. Now, remember, who was John addressing? If we confess our sins, if we, John's one of them. He did not say, if the lost confess their sins, God's faithful and just to forgive them. No, he was addressing here the sins of believers. God made provision for the sins of the saints, God is not in heaven, downcast and fretting because believers sin. He's not disillusioned and, uh, and angry. Uh, I can't believe I sinned after I saved them. No, God made perfect provision for us. When you think of this, does your spirit praise Him? It should. When you think of this, do you think, oh, well, it doesn't matter that much then if I sin? If so, you just had a blasphemous thought. If you would use the blood of Jesus Christ shed at so much pain and agony to lessen your diligence against sin, you're toying with blasphemy. Romans 3.8 Paul said and why not say just as some people slanderously claim we say let us do what is evil so that good may come their condemnation is deserved notice their condemnation is deserved the assumption is that people who have the attitude let's sin because it's forgiven anyway they are under condemnation and John agreed with this Verse 6 If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. First John 1 9 cannot be used as a cover for intentional sin. People who walk in intentional sin demonstrate that their salvation was not genuine. All right, let's break down the verse a little bit. If we confess, what is confession? one commentator described confession this way. He said, We must drag our sins out in the open before God, call them by their names, take sides with God against them, and forsake them. Forsaking sins is part of confession. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy, Proverbs 28, 13. And so in confession, our sins are dragged out into the open in front of God for the purpose of forsaking them. Or right, what does God do after you confess your sins? He forgives. But here again. We have a little explanation on something that could be confusing because someone says, well, wait, I thought a person was forgiven at the point of salvation. Does this mean that a Christian's sin is not forgiven until he confesses it? And then you'll get questions like this. My brother was a Christian his whole life, but one night he got into an argument with his wife. He stormed out of the house and drove off, and while he was driving, he called his wife and was cursing and using God's name in vain. At that very instant, he was in a wreck and killed instantly. Did he lose his faith? Did he lose salvation? The answer is no. He did not lose his salvation. So what we're talking about here is the difference between what theologians call judicial forgiveness and parental forgiveness. Judicial forgiveness happens at the time of salvation and ensures that the believer will never be judged in an eternal way for his sins. All of your sins are removed as far as the east is from the west on a judicial basis. But when a believer sins, he creates a barrier between himself and God And the fellowship is broken. And I think that you have recollections of something similar happened if you ever stole a cookie out of the cookie jar and then your mother walked into the room. You didn't feel so close to your mom right then, did you? She was still your mother. But you didn't feel that relationship with her until you made it right. Mama, I stole a cookie. I'm so sorry. And then your relationship was repaired. Confession on the part of the believer restores the closeness of the relationship with God. Just like you when you confessed the stolen cookie confessed it to your mother and then the relationship is restored so when you confess God forgives secondly it says God cleanses he wipes your record clean he no longer holds anything against you he does not regard you with suspicion so he's got that tendency does he God doesn't view you with a with a cautious distancing mm-hmm. don't want to trust this guy too much all unrighteousness is cleansed away there is not pockets of sin where God would say no that's a bridge too far you know I'm done with you. It's not in first John one nine. All it says is that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now there's those two words that show up faithful and just. God is faithful. To forgive and cleanse. Okay, what does that mean? Well, he's faithful because he's honoring his promise. For example, Acts 10 43, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. God's faithful to his promises. God is also just to forgive us our sins. And this is one that people struggle with a great deal. How is it just? that God can forgive my sins. Well, God is just to forgive our sins because they are paid for. And so if, if Andrea pays for the repair of my car and then I go to pick it up at Ray's garage, they can't say to me, hey, you didn't pay for it, so Andy up the money. That would be unjust. And God, having received payment for your sins and mine through the blood of Jesus Christ, is just when he says they are now forgiven and they are now cleansed away. Uh, 1 John 1.9 is an invitation to you to keep your fellowship with God in the here and now. Is your fellowship with God fresh? Is God moving in your, in your life today, or is your testimony stale? Now, now, remember, John wrote his epistle so that we can know that we are saved. Oh, how should I have confidence that I am saved? If I'm in constant fellowship with God, I'll know that I am saved. But if I've grown distant from him, if I don't talk to him, if I don't read scripture, if the relationship has gone cold, Then I'm going to begin to have doubts if I know God at all. If your relationship with God has grown cold, this is the verse for you God is faithful and just, He is there to forgive and cleanse. Now it's up to you to do your part. Confession is not a one time event that happens at salvation, it's ongoing. Anytime that something gets in the way of your relationship with God, you need to confess that. Clear the air, and then begin to enjoy God's presence once again. And Notice there's no limitation on how often we can confess. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We we get tired of confessing the same old sins. And if we're not careful, we begin to think, wow, oh, oh, I, I just asked forgiveness for that yesterday. I, I don't know if I should go back again today so soon. See, those limitations exist only in our mind. There's No evidence that they exist in God's mind. All the evidence is to the contrary. We put limits on it. We limit how forgiving God should be. We limit how patient God should be. Because we are limited in our patience when others offend us. And when we're offended over and over and over again by the same person, we begin to distance ourselves uh, at best. Maybe we begin to have resentment and hatred toward that person, and so we believe then that God must be the same way. He's got to be tired of me coming back. Go every day if you need. Go every hour if you need. Sometimes you may need to go every minute, but God is faithful. He's promised. God is just. There's no unrighteousness that he will not cleanse from all unrighteousness. So, perhaps, God is waiting to hear from you. If we confess our sins, it's not his it's not his move now it's your move Draw near to God and he will draw near to you James 4 verse 8 Ongoing confession is needed to maintain fellowship with God God has made provision For every saint that is willing to take those sins to him, there is immediate restoration of the fellowship with him. There is cleansing. And likewise, for any unbeliever who repents and goes to God asking for salvation, there is also immediate fellowship Established with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful this morning for the great love that you have, the great patience that you have with us, the great provision that you've made. Father, even for us who are saved, we become frustrated with ourselves at how often we fail. And perhaps rightly so. But help us not to lose sight of the fact that you have provided for our sins, all unrighteousness. And help us to be willing, Father, to go to you and drag our sins out in the open and confess them so that you can forgive and restore the relationship and and cleanse us again. Help us as we continue to worship this morning. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name.